Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. So um, last week, I, I mentioned a couple guys' names that I might think that we'd be best friends if we ever met, and they were Justin Timberlake and Zac Efron, right? And, and last, last week and Sunday night, there's a couple guys here that thought it'd be funny to send me a bunch of pictures of those two men, um, and my wife picked up the phone, and you know how that goes, it was good. I'm going to add another name to your list, um, and if you're new here, I don't do this every week, this is just special, but actually there's a guy that I used to love growing up, I, I love basketball. I always have loved basketball. If you had asked me when I was a kid what I want to do with my life, I would have said my dream is to play in the NBA. And I know you're looking at me saying, I can see it. Thank you. Um, so one of the guys I idolized being a Mavericks fan and being a basketball player was, I mean, Steve Nash was my favorite, you know. I had, I literally for four years had a Lego man Steve Nash on my keychain that it took with me, Okay. And one thing about where I went to college was in downtown Chicago, every team that played the Bulls practiced in my gym, which is amazing. So all these NBA teams would roll in, and we could watch them practice, and we weren't really allowed to talk to the players unless they approached us, but it was Steve Nash, everybody. So the Mavericks were in town, and I go to the gym and watch them practice, and afterwards, Steve Nash was going to get on the bus, and there was about 20, maybe 30 yards of pavement from the entrance of our gym to the street where the charter bus was. And I sat there and waited, and I waited, and I waited, and then I see Steve, right? And at this point, I'd watched so many videos of the guy, and I thought we would be best friends. I had this whole speech kind of prepared. And he walks out and immediately he gets on his cell phone, but I'm determined. And he gets on his cell phone and I walk up to him, cell phone or not. And I said, Steve. And he looks at me and I said, Hey, Steve. And he puts his phone down and he looked at me and he said, yeah, man, what's going on? And I froze. <laughs> like I, and I thought I was cool, man. And I, I was like, I died. And I literally, I just looked at him and said, I, I I think, I think you're, you're pretty great. And then I walked away, right? I completely fangirled Steve Nash in front of his face and couldn't stop it. And I thought we'd be really close and I thought it'd be easy and I didn't realize what I was doing, you know? And why I bring that up? Because in Matthew 6, Jesus starts talking about prayer and he's talking with a bunch of followers and Pharisees, religious leaders of the day, and they've been using a lot of words to pray, and they weren't kind of understanding. They weren't understanding how to pray. And he says, let me teach you guys how to pray. And what he does in the next six weeks and six verses is he kind of goes through, here are some different ingredients that need to be in your prayers. This is what prayer looks like. And what he does in the first bit that we're going to be in today is he says, this is the tone with which you talk to God. Because sometimes it's scary. And there's a tension today that we're going to be in. There's a tension. We're going to be in the first part of it. Uh, Father, heaven, and hallowed. And for me, that's three separate sermons. But we're rolling them into one because I like the tension of what tone do we use when we talk to God? What tone do we use when we go before God in prayer? It's a big question. And, and, and I love tensions because I think we grow in tensions. It's ski season. And one of my favorite analogies is if you've ever been skiing, there's these lifts. But... 
And you get to the top of the mountain, there are these T-bar lifts. And those aren't the ones you sit on. They, as you sit on them, they, they, they're just a bar and they drag you up the mountain and, and your skis or my snowboard is always touching. And if you don't know what you're doing, you look like an idiot because it comes and it makes you face plant. And the first few times, because you don't want to sit back on this thing and trust it. You want to kind of help it go forward because we're not comfortable with tension. But the, pro- the point is, as you sit back into this T-bar, as you sit into the tension, it then propels you forward. I think we grow in tension. So today isn't necessarily a right or a wrong answer. There's not going to be a ton of this is what you're supposed to do when you go home. There's just going to be questions about the tone you take when you talk to God. And in the first few verses, in the first line, excuse me, of the Lord's Prayer, we have two distinct tones. We have a tension built in about the God that we pray to. But before we do that, I want us to, I think the Lord's Prayer is something that we all know and probably know by heart. I think it's something you learned as a kid. Whether you grew up in church or didn't, you probably know it. And so what I, I kind of want to just say it out loud together, however you learned it, okay? Um, and if you don't know it, that's okay. Just say watermelon over and over again and nobody's going to be able to tell, <laughs> all right? So I'm going to start us off and let's say the Lord's Prayer, whatever words you grew up with, let's just say it together to start this off. Ready? Our Father who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our... Oh, oh yeah, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the glory, and the power forever and ever. Amen. And why, why we did that? There's a couple sticky words in there. You know, there's, there's the trespasses group, and then there's the debt group, you know, and then we fight each other, but that's in three weeks. Uh, we're going to pick sides. I'm kidding. Uh, I'm Methodist. I grew up saying trespasses, and we're going to use the NASB translation of this, this six weeks, just if you're curious, because I think it most resembles what we all know and what we all grew up with. And one of my goals is to take something that probably we know and know well and give new meaning to it. Something that we can recite and forget what we're reciting because it tells us about the nature and character of God. And so before we get into it today, um, I'm going to spend some time getting us ready to get into it today. And so every Sunday at Crossroads, we have two goals. We want to know God and experience God because God wired us both ways. To, To learn about him and to grow in our understanding and comprehension of his character, and then also to experience him in worship, one without the other, isn't a full picture of how God created us to be. And so we're going to take a few seconds, and we're going to pray, and I'm going to ask if you're comfortable that you pray to yourself, that God does a work in you, and that the Spirit speaks to you through his scriptures, and uses me in the process, because we believe that he's living, and he's active, and he's here. And that takes both of us listening, learning, and praying together as we read the scriptures to, to know God more. So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful for your word, for the opportunity we have to come here this morning. I pray that you teach us today. I pray that you teach us in the tension about our tone when we, when we pray to you and what that looks like and should be. So I'd ask now if, if you guys are comfortable, just take a couple seconds and pray silently that the spirit might teach you through the word of God today. I ask that you take a couple seconds and pray for me, that what I say is good and edifying and encouraging and used by God. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're in the first line in verse 9, 6, 9. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we're just going to chart through this almost word by word. The first word we come to when we see prayer, when God says, Jesus says, pray like this is our. 
Jesus says the Pharisees and followers pray like this, and he starts with this idea of our. Here's the deal. I don't think we as Americans are good with the concept of our. There's a guy that came around in the 70s and 80s. He wrote a book in 1991. His name is Gert Hofsted. And the book is Culture and Organization Softwares of the Mind. It charted new ground when it came to cultural differences and how one country relates to another. At that point, there wasn't yet a used metric for how Guatemala is different than America. It wasn't quantifiable. We knew it was different, but we didn't know why or how or how we could relate those things to Japan. And what he did was came along and said, throughout all cultures, I know six indexes, indices. I know six differentiators between the cultures. And if we chart them out, we can get a pretty good feel for what that culture values. Things like their relationship to power. Things like the masculinity or femininity in a culture. One of the biggest cultural indicators that he uses is individualism. And then he charts that on a graph on a point scale, 0 to 100. Okay, America, do you know where we are? Out of all the countries in the world, on the individualistic scale? That's right, we're number one, everybody. Right? We got 91 out of 100 on the scale of individualism. That means that we love I. We are a me, not an our culture. We are a me, not a we culture. Everything, and it's not necessarily good or bad, it is what it is, but the things that we do are usually filtered through the lens of how does it impact me, not how does it impact we. My life, right? My career, and and really most kids don't take into account what their mom and dad wants when they pick spouses or careers or those things. It's an individualistic culture, and that's okay. But what that does is in some ways it changes how we view God and how we see the Bible. So, for example, the, the least individualistic country in the world is Guatemala. We got a 91. Guatemala got a 6, okay? Actually, I lived in Guatemala for a little while, and I was a teacher. I taught English there. And, man, let me just tell you, you notice the difference. So I get my first test, and it's crazy. I was, I was taught growing up that if you cheat, that is wrong. That is that's really, really wrong. Like, do not look on anybody else's paper. Do not copy anybody's answers. That is one of the worst things you can do as, in terms of you growing and achieving. And so I get my first test in Guatemala, and I hand out the paper. And kids are literally walking over to other kids' desks saying, hey, man, what do you get for number six? You know, six. Six right? And they're saying across the room, hey, you know, they yell out a name, what do you get for this answer? And I'm trying to yell at them, guys, you can't do that. And they're saying, why not? So I go to my principal, who's an American, and and she'd been there for 20 years. And she said, man, everything's shared in this culture. And she said, if you want to fix that problem, give out your next test. And the first kid that gets up to look on somebody else's paper, walk over to him, pick up his test, rip it in half and say zero, right? And she said, he'll cry, but nobody will do it again. I was like, wow, that is hard, you know? I did not do that. Uh, But it's this idea that in our culture, we would never think to share answers because that's some way it's been taught that it's implicitly wrong, intrinsically wrong to do that. In other cultures, it's not that way because we are, by and large, incredibly individualistic. And here's why that matters, is that impacts how we view God, that impacts how we read the scriptures. So, for example, there's a theological distinctive called um, inseparable operations. And what that means is, it means that everything God does, God does together in the Trinity. And what that means is when God acts, he's always acting as three and not just one. But here's what we've taught. I bet if I were to ask most people that know God, I'd say, hey, what's the, what are some things that God did and Jesus did and the Spirit did? He'd say, well, God created everything and Jesus died on the cross and the Spirit 
does some stuff. <laughs> our, our pneumatology isn't very strong, right? It's kind of like the force. It's not. But we would say kind of these broad descriptions of things that the individual parts of the deity do. And that's incorrect theology. What, what we need to realize is that everything God does, God does as Trinity. We see it in Genesis 1 and verse 26. When he created the first act he did, he said, God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. God the Father isn't the only one creating. He also created with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. It's this idea that in everything that God does, it happens from the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whether it's creation, salvation, or, or sustaining the world in the church now. God is always acting in his trinity. But as individual Westerners, as Americans, we separate the works of God and we ascribe different ones to different people of the trinity, different persons of the trinity, because it makes sense to us, because we have an individualistic bent. The problem with that, the problem with the individualistic bent is we miss the nature of God that is communal. That's why when Jesus says, hey, let's pray, this is how you do it, it begins with our and what we see is that the communal nature of the Lord's Prayer is a reminder that we aren't alone in our relationship with God. And as Americans, as individualists, it's so easy to believe we are. It's so easy to believe we're alone all the time, even if we have friends and lots of followers on social media. But Jesus says, when you pray, the first thing you need to remember is that you are not alone when you pray. That this thing that I'm creating, this thing that I am, is communal by nature. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we must get rid of every weight and the sin that clings so easily and run with endurance the race set for us. The first thing we have to realize when we come to God in prayer is that we're not alone in coming to God in prayer. That he starts the prayer by saying, this is ours, not mine. This is ours, not I. This is a we thing, not a me thing, when we pray every single time. And it's so hard because we're such an individualistic culture, but it comforts us because it's so easy to feel like I'm all alone in what I pray for. There's a, a theologian who wrote a commentary on the Lord's Prayer, and he said, there may be religions that come to you through quiet walks in the woods or sitting quietly in the library with a book or rummaging around in the recesses of your psyche by yourself. Christianity's not one of them. Christianity is inherently communal, a matter of life in the body of the church. Jesus did not call isolated individuals to follow him. He called a group of disciples. It's this idea that we believe at Crossroads that you can't do life alone, and it's not just preference. It's reflective in the character and the very nature of God himself. It's how we were created. He's saying, this is our Father. When you pray, no, even though you might feel alone, you are not. And there's comfort in that. My wife had dinner on Friday. She had this book club and it's a lot of CBC people and some, um, some other people and, and she went to this dinner on Friday and one of the women that were there actually used to go to CBC and then their family moved to Wisconsin. They're really loving that decision right now. So they, it's like minus 40 there. So they, um, they live in Wisconsin now and they went around the table at this dinner and they said, hey, where have you seen God or what is working for you? What, where, where have you seen and been been blown away by like the faithfulness of God. And this one woman said to my wife, she said, hey, I just want you to know that, man, I pray for you and Charlie all the time. My husband and I do. We pray all the time for you guys. And so the next day, Sarah and I were talking and she was telling me how the dinner went. And she said, um, the thing that I'm most thankful for that I felt so full because of was the fact that it's blown me away in the last six, eight, nine months, whatever it's been, that people pray for us. 
It's blown me away that people stop me and say they're praying for us with their kid and with their house and with their job. It's blown me away that I'm not in this alone. Jesus starts by saying, our Father, it's so easy to reduce the gospel to an individualistic pursuit to feel alone as we pray. But God says, even if this woman in Wisconsin, even if they're not present with you, they're praying for you, it's still our, you know? It's a beautiful reality that I need to remind of because I live in America and we scored a 91, you know? So he says, our Father, and that word Father, um, (laughs) that word Father's an interesting one. So the first century world, the idea of God being a father like we think father would have absolutely been nothing that they thought of. God was usually never described as father. Actually, in the Old Testament, 39 books, two-thirds of the Bible that we have, in the Old Testament, God is only described as father 15 times. And all of those 15 are about the country or the king, never an individual. So if you're a Jew in the first century world and Jesus says, our father, that is not language you're comfortable with. That's not something you understand like we understand it. And one thing we have to realize when we talk about God as father is that word in and of itself carries with it weight. It has baggage to it. So what we say sometimes might not be what we mean. People hear things in, in ways differently than we want them to. And I'm willing to bet I don't know everybody in this room. I don't know your life story, but we probably in this room probably have pretty great fathers. But, but there are people that don't, you know? And so in the, in the church history, they've kind of run into these problems where they would say words and, and the words would kind of confuse people that didn't follow Jesus, that didn't know what they meant. So communion is a great example. In the first and second centuries, there was a couple different groups that rose up that didn't want to become Christians because they thought Christians were cannibals. Because they were not saying, you know, we drink the blood of Christ and eat his body. And they didn't understand what that meant. And so they're like, these Christians are cannibalistic in nature. I want nothing to do with it. And they would say, well, that's not what we mean. You have to understand what we mean. The same thing happens when we talk about the word father. In the first century world, the word father was way different than it is now. And we've talked about this quite a few times in the last year, but the father in the first century world was the overarching authority of everything in the house, women, kids, and slaves. That's why Ephesians talks about those three distinctions when it talks about family life. And so what they did as as the overarching authority is they ran things whatever way they wanted. It was very dictarian and utilitarian in nature. And so one of the, I mean, the best example that we've used before is when you had a kid, You'd put the kid on the floor, and if the father didn't pick the kid up for whatever reason, you didn't keep him. You'd put it outside the door, and it would either die or somebody else would pick it up. The father ruled with an iron fist, and there wasn't a whole lot of compassion. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians, hey, treat your family with some compassion. You're missing out on the point here. It's not about your power. It's about people seeing the love of Christ and how you lead people. That's real power. And it's what meekness is. And so he says... This is who God is. He's our father. And in the first century Roman world, that just meant he was authoritarian and distant. And then I think about how we see fathers now. And like I said, we've got to unpack some baggage. And, and most of us probably have pretty great fathers. I know I had one. But here's one thing we have to understand is when we call God father, oftentimes people bring the baggage of their fathers into how they see the merit of God as their father. What happens is you use your dad to define how good God is. Because we can't help but, you know. I think there's two major problems, um, two major hardships people deal with, at least in our culture when it comes to fathers. One is we don't want to look at it or admit it, but there's a growing trend of fathers who just aren't there. Uh, The Pew Research Center and folks in the family put out a number this year. They said 24 million children live without their biological father in the home. 
That's about one in every three or four. I think that there's another standard or idea because we live in an individualistic meritocracy that, that we don't live up to the expectations of our fathers, parents really, but fathers specifically. And so we paint this picture of God being a father, but if our father wasn't there, if our father always had this line that we couldn't live up to, what do we think about how God treats us? There was a football player uh, recently, Tua Tugavaloa, I butchered the name, but he played for Alabama, who won second place in the national championship to Clemson. And, and um, we have, I thought somebody would say amen. We, um, we was reading an article about him, and this kid is an amazing Christian. His dad's an amazing Christian man, amazing Christian man. He, he got on stage after he almost won the Heisman and was going to the national championship, this 19-year-old, 18-year-old, and said, you know what, this game is really important, but this platform just gives me a bigger platform to talk about Jesus. Like, an amazing young man. He's a Christian. And he said, in this interview that kind of got some heat, he said, my dad um, ruled our household with the Bible and the belt. And so what would happen, if he had a bad football game, he'd come home and his dad would, you know, discipline him in ways that some people think is awful and some people think is okay, and that's not the point of today's conversation, but he, this guy loved the Lord, but he always set the standard of, even though you're the best that you've ever played with football-wise, you're still not good enough when you mess up. I wonder how that shapes how he views his heavenly father. Because here's the truth of all of it. It's that we all the time let the broken define the whole. We let the human define the divine when it comes to God our father. That's a problem. Because we look at our dad and then we see God as dad and we think that's got to be what God is like. And we take the flaws of our parents because even the best of them have flaws and we say God is like this and it shapes how we view God. So I think one of this week as I thought about things, one of the bigger questions I had that is something that you walk away with and talk about with your family and friends is how has your relationship with your father changed or impacted how you see your relationship with God? Because it has. Because oftentimes we let the broken define the whole, the human define the deed, the, the divine. There's one book called by a guy named Jonathan uh, Edwards, and not the one you're thinking of. He wrote it recently, and it's entitled "Left: The Struggle to Make Sense of Life When a Parent Leaves." He's talking about how it related to how he sees God, and he said, instead of looking at my dad and then back at God, I learned to look at God first. If I didn't start with God, then he would always be the replica rather than the original. So when we say God is Father, we've got to deal with the baggage that comes with that word. We've got to deal with how we interpret Father and how sometimes we carry over the brokenness of the relationships here to the perfection that is God being our Father, the divine. Because oftentimes we don't understand the difference. And what Jesus came to do was redefine what a good Father is for people that hadn't experienced it. Jesus came to say, hey, let me redefine what a father looks like. You're going to pray our father, but, but I'm going to teach you about this, this father that you don't know, that I know, that is my father too. This is our father that is really, really good. And it fundamentally, when you understand father as Jesus understands father, it fundamentally changes the way that you pray. It changes how you see God. So in the Old Testament, there was 15 times that God was described as Father, not one individual. In the New Testament, there's 44 times alone that Jesus says God is Father. There's 109 in John. There's 250 overall. Jesus is redefining the relationship with God to the Jews in the first century world. He's saying he's not Father like you think. He's good and he's near and he's your Father. And that does things. So it says in Galatians 4, it puts it like this. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. Born of a woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. So what he says fundamentally is, hey, I came so that you might be adopted into the family. And this is where the gospel's different than the meritocracy we live in. You don't earn God's affection. It's given because of Jesus. You don't earn God's approval. It's given through Jesus. When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That is a beautiful, freeing, grace-filled statement. It means that you and me are on the same plane with Jesus in terms of our relationship with God. What it means is that he fundamentally changed how we relate to God in general. It goes on in Galatians to say, in verse 6, because your sons, here's the difference, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Who calls God Abba, Father? That word is cloaked with intimacy. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. If you're a son, then you're also an heir through God. What he's saying, essentially, is that because Jesus did what he did, we are now near and dear to God as heirs. What he's saying is he's rewriting how we treat God, how we talk to God, and it matters. Because when we're heirs, and when we're sons, and when we're daughters, it positionally changes how we pray. So, for example, I, um, my kid has like two party tricks. She smiles, and she sucks her thumb, you know? We added a third one this week, everybody. She, she, now, she now rolls over onto her stomach, all right? I know. She, she's an overachiever, we tell her. Um, but so it's actually the first time it happened was, was Tuesday morning. And you guys got to understand, I... I think the time which we live has goods and bads for parents. It's got goods because I don't know how people parented without Google. I don't, I don't, I do not, do not understand it. I mean, I don't get it. But at the same time, ignorance is bliss because I read articles and everything's trying to kill my baby. Okay. Everything. And so I had read and I had heard and I had talked to friends that if kids roll over on their stomach and sleep that way, they, that's when the bad things happen. And so I, go into her room on Tuesday morning to wake her up and she's fussing a little bit. And all of a sudden I see her on her belly, like with her head up like this, doing this, you know? And I yelled, Sarah, you got to look at this on the monitor. <laughs> she, she looked at the monitor, she goes, oh my goodness. And so I flipped her over, you know? And I was talking to some friends about it and one of my friends actually, his kids start sleeping on his belly and they bought this special mattress that's mesh that you can breathe through, you know? It's like 200 bucks. And I was like, do we need to get that? How long was she on her stomach? Four, this is terrible. I don't know what to do about it. I... I love the difference in generations. I was telling this to a couple people up here that have older kids, like way older kids. And I said, she, she, flo- she flipped over on her stomach. And they both said, thank God, now you can finally sleep. <laughs> I said, no, it's the opposite. I was terrified because I thought my, my, uh, my friend that bought the mesh mattress said, yeah, it's not just about them turning their head. What about the CO2? And I was like, oh my gosh. So the next night, I kid you not. I'm terrified that she's not going to make it through the night because now she's on her stomach, but she can't roll back over. And so I sat there with the monitor on my nightstand and about every 45 minutes I woke up and I checked to see if she was on her stomach, right? But, and, and, and once or twice, I heard like the slightest peep, you know, like she was a little uncomfortable because she was on her stomach. I got up and I ran down the hallway to flip her over, you know? Why did I respond just because she was uncomfortable? Because here's the deal. I, I was her father and, and I loved her. And here's why that matters. She wasn't going to die because she was on her stomach. But what it did was, whether my kid cries because she's a little uncomfortable or because she's laying on her pacifier or because the sun's a little too bright or just because she can have confidence to cry out to her parents because we're her parents and we're good right now. Let's get to teenage years. (laughs) It's this beautiful idea that if we understand God as our father, it changes how we pray 
Jesus changes our position of petition instead of praying to a far-off deity. We call out to God as Father. And what that does is it gives you and me confidence when we pray. Hebrews 4 puts it like this. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Because here's the deal. Sometimes I think to myself that my problems are too small. Sometimes I think that I could have fixed them on my own. Sometimes I think that God doesn't want to listen. Sometimes I think that he's busy. Sometimes I have all of these thoughts that I know aren't true flood into my head. And if I don't understand the right relationship of God as my father, then they stop me from praying. But rather, Jesus says, our father. And what that means is we can pray with the full confidence as heirs. No matter how big or how small or how petty or how late or how early or how busy. We can pray with confidence. So when we talk about the tone with which we talk to God, we pray as his family. John Calvin said it like this, for nothing is better adapted to excite us to prayer than a full conviction that we will be heard. Martin Luther, another theological giant, said, he knows that we're timid and shy, that we feel unworthy and unfit to present our needs to God. We think that God is so great and we're so tiny and that we don't dare pray. That is why Christ wants to lure us away from such timid thoughts to remove our doubts and to have us go ahead confidently and boldly. When we see God as our Father, it gives us confidence when we pray. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful concept that I need to remember because I so often forget. But here's where the tension comes in. The tension is, Jesus says, he's our Father, and then he says, but he's in heaven. And then he says, he's our father. And he paints this picture that God is near and God is close and God is kind. And Jesus is our friend. And this really informal, intimate view of God. But he doesn't stop there. He juxtaposes it with this view of heaven. But here's this God that's here and near and your friend and cares. But he also resides in heaven. And those two things seemingly fight each other. Because if I'm talking about a God who's my friend and then I'm talking about a God who is in heaven, those are different ways I talk to people. So let's talk about heaven for just a second. It says, our Father who is in heaven, and I, we got to start with what we think about heaven growing up. I, I always thought, I was always told that heaven is this place. It's this static environment that doesn't change where God is. And one day, if I accept Jesus in my heart, I'm going to get to go to heaven and for the rest of eternity, sing hymns to him. And I thought, I should be excited for this, <laughs> but I'm not going to lie, guys. That one doesn't move my needle a ton, all right? It might for the first 10 or 15 minutes, but then I'm like, guys, I mean, I, I sang all the hymns I know. <laughs> I, don't know I don't know anymore. And so really, we got to start with our presuppositions about what heaven is and what it isn't. There was, uh, my wife was going through a box of memories yesterday that her parents dropped off, her from high school, and she had this, this newspaper we don't know where it's from or why it was even kept. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show it to the staff this week. But on this newspaper paper was highlighted this section of church bulletin bloopers, and we read through them, and they were fantastic. And one of them was kind of like what I think when I think about singing for eternity. It, it, this was printed in the bulletin. It says, at the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be what is hell. Come early and listen to our choir practice. <laughs> right? I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, and I love choirs. I was in choir, but doing it forever seems a bit daunting. I wonder if we carry a presupposition or two that might not be true about what heaven is. And here's what the Bible says about heaven, very little, but some things. It says in 1 Peter 3, 
It says, Jesus Christ who went into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. So what it says about heaven is that in heaven, God is completely in control. And when God is completely in control, this is what it looks like. Revelation 21, look, the residence, the presence of God is among human beings. He will live among them and they will be his people and God himself will be them, will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and the death will not exist anymore. Nor mourning or crying or pain for the former things have ceased to exist. What we see when it talks about heaven in the scriptures is it's not a static of a place as much as it is a place where the presence of God is fully known. As much as wherever the presence of God is in full control, it seems to describe that being as heaven. Not a place on the map that you can go to and go in and out of, but wherever God's presence is fully known and fully exists, that's what we seem to describe as heaven. That's why in Genesis 1, he says, this is my best good. I created this place for you. This place where my influence is fully felt, my presence is fully known. And why it's good is because he's ultimate good and where his presence is fully known, evil can't exist at the same time. He says, and it's good because I'm fully there, my presence is fully in control and you were made for it. So Psalm 63 Heaven is good. Oh God, you're my God. I long for you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. It's what we were made for, to be in the presence of God. It's the ultimate good. It's why we call heaven, heaven, because God is good. He is there, and it's our good to be in the presence of God who made us. John 17, Jesus says this. Now this is eternal life. This is heaven, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. There's this idea that heaven is the infinite knowing deeper and deeper of a God who can never be fully comprehended or understood. A place where the presence of God fully exists and fully exerts his authority. And so what we see, and we're going to talk about this a lot more next week, heaven is where God's presence is fully known, his influence is fully felt, and everything around him is fully blessed. This, this idea that heaven isn't necessarily static, but it's a place where God's presence is fully known, fully experienced, and fully blesses everything around it because that's what happens when we live in the full presence of God. And so, will we sing hymns to God? I think so. Will there also be basketball? I hope so. You know, I think those things aren't mutually exclusive and they are good. So he says, our Father who art in heaven. It's this beautiful idea that we understand that God is near and he's our father, but he's also in a place that's not where we are. He's also in a place that's different from where we are. And there's the tension, is we talk to God with the tone of familiarity, but not the tone of commonality. So for example, I think if we, and this is what we do really well in our culture, I think we're really good talking about Jesus as our friend and God as our friend. But if, if we forget that God is more than just our friend, that he's more than just familiar, what we do is, we make God common and he's anything but. And we forget his position in relation to ours. And Jesus says, when you pray, you pray to a God that's both near and different from you. Don't forget. So Steve Nash walked out. And <laughs> I don't know what I expected, but I'd, I'd watched a lot of his videos. I played basketball with all my friends every day. I was a small white kid. And I thought, we are really similar, you know? You watch these guys play in the NBA and, and, and you think, I mean, look, it doesn't look like that much of a different game than I play. And then I went and saw him practice it at college. And I thought to myself, that is not the same version of basketball that I've been playing my entire life, right? 
I was like, this is not what I thought it was when I watch him and when I, um, I, I watch games of the Mavs that when I play other teams. And then he walked out, and this blew me away. He walked out, and I go to say hi to him. This might be part of the reason why I was a little dumbfounded. He go to say hi to him. I'm 5'9", and this dude is 6'3", right? He's as tall as my twin brother, whom everybody says is just tall, And so I thought Steve Nash and I were going to be eye to eye. I'm looking at the guy's chin. And for the first time in my life, I realized that Steve Nash is not like me or my friends. I realized that Steve Nash is utterly different. And this whole time, I'd made the misconception and and thought that he was just like me. I'd forgotten that the NBA is different than my backyard, my private school, my varsity basketball game. I'd forgotten that God's perspective is bigger than mine because it seems so similar because he's also my father. It's this idea that what Jesus does when he says, let's pray this way, he says, remember that he's near, but don't forget that he's not common. Don't forget that he's different than you. That's a really interesting point to make. And so then he drives it home by saying, and you know what that does? You fully comprehending the glory of God, you fully comprehending the otherness, the bigness, the differentness of God, that makes you do what the last phrase is, hallow the name of God. So when it says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, we don't use that word much anymore. It's a derivative of the Greek word for holy. So literally it means to sanctify or to make holy. And it's in a different mood in the Greek, which is kind of like a wish or a desire. So it's saying, our father who is in heaven, who art in heaven, may your name be made holy. May let your name be made holy. And before we move on, we have to establish one fundamental truth is that what it's not saying is let's make God holy. I hope that you are made holy. God is holiness. We do not make God holy. What we do is we make others see that God is holy. There's a big difference there. What we do is we don't make God holy. Nothing we can do can either add to or take away from the holiness of God. So if we live well into the rhythms of Jesus and in the rhythms of the kingdom of God, people can see that God is good. But even if we live against them, people then see that God's goodness is juxtaposed to our badness. We can't add to or take away from the holiness of God in anything we do. But when he says, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven, may your name be made holy. What he's saying is as as ambassadors with Jesus, we have the ability to show people God's holiness more clearly. It says in Ezekiel 20, when he's talking about his people in the Old Testament, the purpose of them was to show God to other people, to other nations. He said, but for the sake of my name, I brought them out of Egypt. I did it to keep my name from being profaned in the eyes of the nations among whom they lived and whose sight I had revealed myself to the Israelites. What he's saying is, I didn't bring these people out because they were better than anybody else. I brought them out so that people might know that I'm holy, that they might be a tool to see my holiness more clearly. So he's saying if you understand the tension between God our Father and God as other and not common, then you have no choice but to show others how great that difference is. And, And to do that, we have to acknowledge that the way that we act as followers of Jesus can actually skew people's view of God. You know? My... My grad school, Wheaton College, when I went there, I, I don't remember when they made the change. I might have been there, I might not have been, but they used to be known as the Wheaton for years, the Wheaton Crusaders. I don't know if you guys know history much, but the Crusades were awful. You had a bunch of people in the name of God killing a bunch of people um, for land, essentially, and because they believed differently. And, and, and look, God doesn't like when people don't believe in him, but he doesn't call us to kill those people either, okay? And so they were very bloody. There were several of them. 
And Wheaton got together and they said, you know what, maybe us calling ourselves the Crusaders takes away from how people see the holiness of God. And now they're the Wheaton Thunder, everybody, right? It's this idea that what we do impacts how clearly people see a good God. I think last week, last week we had a newcomer's lunch with a bunch of people and it was awesome. And um, I shared a little of my story that you guys probably know, but I got done with that school and, and I, went to, I went to extremes to not work at a church. I, I drove trucks for a year and did a couple other things. I didn't want to work at a church because the churches that I ran into, and most of it was probably my fault, but the churches that I ran into didn't paint a clear picture of a God who loved me. And they clearly didn't show me that God was good. And so God was still good and God still loved me, but the people that I associated with God didn't do a great job of showing that more clearly. When it says, hallowed be the name of God, what it means is to hallow the name of God is to let others see God's holiness clearly. So when he says, we are called then in spite of his otherness, of his not calmness to hallow his name, we are called to show people that God is good. And everything we do, and then it has one more meaning. Leviticus 10.3 puts it like this. Then Moses and Aaron, Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, hallowed. And before all people, I will be glorified. So what he's saying is, if we hallow the name of God, if we make known the holiness of God, we can't help to then glorify that holiness. So our job then as we hallow is not to just show people the, the holiness of God clearly, but it's also to make God's glory your good. Hallowed be thy name. We're praying, God, listen to me like a son. Let me recognize your perspective in the midst of my own. And because of that, let me show people those things. And I, I do that even in how I pray. John Piper says it like this. You hallow the name of God when you trust him, revere him, obey him, and glorify him. And so we have this tension this morning. We have this tension between talking to God like he's our close father and talking to God like he's the ruler of heaven where we're not. And I think that's okay. <laughs> I think both those need to exist. I think both those need to exist because I need to have confidence when I pray that God who rules everything hears me and cares and loves me and runs down the hall if I flip over on my stomach. And I also need to know that the God who's willing to do that is bigger than me. It's this beautiful picture of I need to pray in both those ways. And really it's a question for us leaving this space. What's your tone when you talk to God? For me, I probably need to remember more of the hallowedness and the heavenness of God than I do the fatherness of God because I've always been told he's my father. But some people might not be confident and some people might need to remember that he listens every time you pray like a good father. They get the reverence thing, they don't get the nearness thing. And so the question this morning is, how do you talk to God? What side of that equation do you lean towards? What side do you need to remember? I remember pretty clearly this one story. I was eight or nine years old and I had a best friend named David Faulkner. And his family was from the South, like the South South, like Mississippi South. And uh, respect for elders was a big deal. And it was in my family as well, but my family's from uh, North Dakota and Iowa. And so there wasn't as many ma'ams or sirs and all that good stuff. And I still, to this day, I call my mom by her first name and she's fine with that. You know, she's how my family rolls. And I remember I was at a basketball game with David who played on my team and, and I couldn't find him and I needed to. And, and I saw his dad walking away. And for some reason, I couldn't for the life of me remember David's last name. It just slipped me. Even though he was my friend because I just called him David. But I remembered his dad's name. And so I yelled out across this gym. I yelled out, hey, AJ, right? And he turned around. And he said, hey, Charlie. And I walk over to him. I said, hey, have you seen your son? Do you know where David is? And he said, no, no, not at all. He said, hey, shake my hand. And he shook my hand. He squeezed a little harder. 
And he said, just to let you know, my name is Mr. Faulkner. You do not call me AJ. <laughs> and I was like, oh, we're different. All right. <laughs> you know? It was this beautiful tension that he listened because I was his son's friend and he cared, but he wanted to remind me the difference between my eight-year-old self and his however old he was self at that moment, you know? It's how we talk to God. It's our tone in which we talk to God shows the God that we pray to in the first place. Keener writes in a commentary on the New Testament, he said, God's fatherhood revealed by Jesus would have been understood in the first century ear as communicating both respectful dependence and affectionate intimacy as well as obedience. And so Jesus says to these people, we're going to end every week like this. Jesus says at the beginning of the prayer, so pray this way. So what does it mean? How does this change how we pray? He says, when we pray, we talk to God with confidence because he's our father while not making the mistake of making God seem common. When we pray, pray in a way that respects both. And so we do some soul searching this week and we ask questions about how we talk to God. We ask questions about, do, we have, do you have confidence to pray to God? Because you should. But then I said, do you also revere God when you pray? Because you should. It's this beautiful picture of Jesus saying, this is the father that we, our, that we pray to together. Our father who art in heaven. Hallowed be his name. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for the grace that you give us to pray to you. I'm thankful for our position before you as sons and daughters, our position before you as heirs to all the things that is yours. I'm thankful that you listen when we pray. And I'm also so incredibly thankful for your otherness, your not commonness. I'm thankful that I pray to a God who's in heaven influencing and impacting everything around him for its ultimate good. So as we pray, as we get into this series, teach me what it is to talk to you in a way that values both, that recognizes both your nearness and your bigness, that, that recognizes that you're bigger than me, but at the same time, you care for me like a father does a son. And may that give us confidence to pray. May that give us an excitement to pray. May that increase how often we pray because you're good. And the way that we talk to you reflects a God who's big and who listens. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.